Praise be to God that he is a mighty fortress. Praise be to God that his word endures forever. Praise be to God that his word, when spoken, can dispel the forces of darkness. Friends, would you open scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 19. We'll be reading from verse 11 to 20. If you did not bring your Bible this morning, um, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. You may open um, it to page number 928. As you open scripture to this, uh, to this place of, of our reading, I want to let you know that we are going through a sermon series through the book of Acts. Pray that the Lord would speak to your hearts and to all of us this morning as we consider the true power of God. Let's read together. Let's read this passage as I read and you listen together God's word for our hearts. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then, some of the itinerant, itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Wow. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to give us his spirit in fresh ways to understand this truth that we have read together. Our Lord, we confess to you that in our sinfulness we cannot understand your word as you would have us. So we ask, would you give us your Holy Spirit so that indeed this word that we have read and the words that will come out of my mind, my mouth, will be indeed your truth spoken to us. May you shape us and mold us. May we come to know the power of Christ through the preaching of your word. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And friends, today's scripture passage that we just read begins by telling us about the power of God. The power of God. 
that accompanied Paul's preaching ministry in Ephesus. But then it tells us uh, of an interesting development, interesting, an interesting incident and story that some people started to imitate Paul's power. They wanted to imitate the miracles that Paul was doing. They learned that the name of Jesus actually has power, so they wanted to use that same power. They wanted to do the miracles in the name of Jesus, but without knowing who, Jesus, who this Jesus truly was. The seven sons of Shiva will learn the hard way, in a very humiliating way, that pretenders who claim the name of Jesus will not last for very long. Pretenders who claim the name of Jesus even for the sake of others, but they themselves, without being touched by the power of God, they cannot last very long. My subject this morning as we look at this passage is to look at pretenders and the true power of God. Pretenders and the true power of God. Friends, pretenders and the true power of God is still with us. This reality is still with us today. If you like taking notes, uh, I'd like to point out three things, three segments of this story. And the first one is this. The power of God attended Paul's preaching. The power of God attended Paul's preaching. We have to backtrack and, and remember what happened last week. And look at verse 10, just as a remembrance of what happened last week. Uh, we were told that Paul stayed in Ephesus for two years and he was preaching the word of God. And look at what verse 10 says. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is what was going on while Paul was in Ephesus. He was preaching the word of the Lord. But verse 11 gives us something extra. It tells us what else was happening with Paul in Ephesus. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, these, notice how these miracles are described as extraordinary miracles or uncommon miracles. Now, a miracle is already something uncommon. <laughs> a miracle, a normal miracle, is an extraordinary thing, right? A, a normal miracle is an unnormal thing for our daily life and existence. Notice what, Paul, what Luke says about these miracles. They were extraordinary miracles. Uh, the point Luke gives us is that they were, even, even among the miracles, they were not common miracles. An example of the kind of power God gave um, and, and showed through Paul's hands is given in verse 12. Look at verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, why is this detail mentioned? You see, uh, God had worked some amazing miracles through Jesus and through his apostles. Remember Jesus at one point, he's, he's crowded by a pretty large crowd around him. At one point, Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples say, Lord, What's wrong with you? The whole, this whole crowd is touching you. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Someone touched me, and a power left me. And a woman 
was healed because she approached Jesus and she just, she had faith in Jesus that if she could just touch his cloth, she would be healed. And she was. Then remember in Acts 5, we were told that, that God was doing extraordinary things through the hands of the apostles. And at one point, it says that through Peter, God was doing such miraculous things that people, people would lay out the sick and bring out the sick and put them on mats in the streets. So that as people, as Peter would walk in the streets, even the shadow of Peter would hit these sick people. And their sicknesses would be healed. God would choose to do some extraordinary miracles. And now Luke tells us that even through Paul, when Paul came to Ephesus, God was doing some of the same things as God chose to do through Jesus and through the, through the apostles. But, but why? Why did God work through Paul's hands in this way in Ephesus? No, it wasn't about Paul. I can assure you that. It, it wasn't about Paul, but about the power of God. You see, something about Ephesus is important for us to remember. Ephesus was um, not only a huge center in the, in the a Asian world, but it was a center known for its spiritual powers or a focus on spiritual powers, focus on sorcery, focus on witchcrafting and magic. Ephesus was, was known as like the capital of, of sorcery, if you will. So, in such a city, while Paul, the messenger of God, came to proclaim the name of Jesus, God gave him powers so that the name of Jesus, as Paul proclaimed it, would be accompanied and attended by the power of God. This is the lawful use of miracles. They point to the truthfulness of God, to the truthfulness of his message. They show that indeed God, who is proclaimed through the preaching of the word, is indeed powerful. God is actually powerful to save. He has extraordinary power. Therefore, people who hear about these extraordinary miracles are called to pay attention to his message. Why did God allow even Paul's handkerchiefs or aprons to cause su such miracles? I love how John Calvin answers this question. He says that even those who had never seen the man might reverently embrace his doctrine, though he himself were absent. That people would come to realize, who is this man and what is he saying that he has such power? The power of Paul, the power that God had given Paul to to, to, to heal and to cast out demons was really to point out the truthfulness of the power of God proclaimed through the message of Paul. The purpose of the miracles of Scripture is to steer attention to the God who works them, to his truth, to his message. If he's able to do such miracles, what does he require of us? This was a purpose why God accompanied Paul's preaching with with such power that all men in Ephesus might know that the Christ preached by Paul was indeed the power of God. The Christ preached by Paul was indeed the power of God. Remember what, what Ephesians 
Ephesians 3, and by the way, in this service, we've read so many passages from the book of Ephesians. You know why? Because Paul is addressing over and over again this truth that in Christ there is power. There's power. Friends, through Christ, we are the recipients of the greatest power God has ever exercised towards us sinners. The power to free us from the bondage of sin. Friends, think about that power for a moment. We don't see that visibly with our eyes. We, we very easily could see the power of miracles, right? Of healings, of something miraculous to happen. We would see that with our eyes. But think for a moment the power that God had to exercise to free us from the bondage of sin. There's no other source of power in this world that would have the ability to free us from the bondage of sin. There's no other force in human history that can free man from sin except the power of God. But how can God help us understand of his power to free us from sin? Remember Jesus was once teaching uh, a crowd, and uh, some friends wanted to bring uh, a quadriplegic, a man or someone who, who could not walk at all. Uh, and they, they, the only way they, was, they were able to bring this friend to Jesus was by, by, by creating a hole in the roof and lowering this friend in front of Jesus. So they do all this, they go through the trouble, and they lower the friend in front of Jesus. And Jesus say, says to them, your sins are forgiven. And these people say, who is this man that is able to forgive sins? And Jesus, who knew their hearts, he says, said to them, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I tell this man, pick up your mat and walk. Miracles were, were given to help us see that indeed God has the power to cast away the power, the, the forces of sin, the guilt of sin, the presence of sin, to forgive us of our sinfulness. Who has the power to free mankind from the bondage of sin? And how will, how will this power be made visible? Well, miracles were given to help us see that God indeed is able to cast them away. If God is able to cast away the illness of our physical bodies, if God is, is able to cast away the evil spirits that dwell people, then God is indeed able to free us from sin and from all the consequences of sin. This is a power which is offered to us in the preaching of Jesus. Friend, if you are not a Christian this morning and uh, you hear about miraculous experiences, uh, these can do one of two things for you. They may either attract you, like, wow, who is this man who is able to do such miraculous things? Or, to modern man today, most of these miracles are a stumbling block. For most men, for most people today, such miracles are like, I, I can't believe that stuff. They're, you know, I haven't seen them around today, so I can't believe them. So miracles for many people today are a stumbling block. Well, here's the point. Even in the Bible times, the biblical times, miracles were never an end in and of themselves. They were, they were they were designed to be signs pointing to the God who worked them. They're pointers 
to help us see that there is indeed a power beyond our ability. So whether you feel attracted to miracles or you feel a stumbling block in miracles, don't get stuck on them. It's what they point to. It's a God that they represent. They're pointers to the God who worked them. And friends, consider the message of this God carefully. And this is, this is the word of the gospel. This is the word of the gospel. It's a message about Jesus, about how he came to save us from our bondage, from our sins, so that through his death, the penalty for our sins might be paid. So that through his death, he may pay the ransom price so that we might be freed. And so that through his resurrection, he might give a new life, an eternal life, an unending life, a life that would overcome death itself to all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ for their salvation. This is the news of the gospel. And when people return to Christ, when people respond to Christ by repentance and trust in him, God enables, God works this miraculous power of transferring sinners bonded to the kingdom of darkness, releasing them and transferring them to the kingdom of light. Only the power of God is able to act out that rescue operation. Friends, 007 is nothing compared to the power of God to rescue sinners from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. But in Ephesus, in Ephesus, God wanted to show the truthfulness of his power, the reality of his mighty work by actually exhibiting and accompanying Paul's preaching with these extraordinary miracles. Friends, don't get stuck on the miracles. Whether you feel attracted to them, or whether you feel a stumbling block in them, go beyond them to what these miracles point, the power of God to save. And if you would like to know more about how to experience the power of God in your own life, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and talk to me. But here's the first point. God attended Paul's preaching with mighty, with mighty powers. But the second point is that on the backdrop of the power of God, which attended Paul's preaching in Ephesus, we see people who wanted to be able to do the same powers. We see people who wanted to, to, to do the same miracles for others. But their, fa- their experience was a big failure. So point number two is that pretenders claim the name of Jesus without being his followers. Pretenders claim the name of Jesus without being his followers against the backdrop of the display of God's power working through the hands of Paul, we see the emergence of pretenders who want to name, who want to use the name of Jesus. They were claiming the name of Jesus not for the sake of being saved, not because they knew Jesus as their Savior and Lord, but because they were only interested in miracles, in performing miracles in his name. Look at verses 13 through 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 
And these people have heard about Jesus. They have seen his power in the lives of other people. But they're not interested in the salvation that Jesus brings. They're interested only in his miraculous works. So they're using the name of Jesus as some sort of a magical formula. Well, Luke will tell us a specific incident that did not turn out very well. The seven sons of Siva. Uh, friends, this story really would make a great action scene in a movie. One man against seven, or seven men against one. And the seven get such a beating that they have to flee the house, and they, they, they lose a the clothes in the process and are wounded. And not only that, we are told this story made the news line in Ephesus. Everybody knew about it. Everybody came to know about it. Well, this is, this is not a funny story. I know it would make us laugh, but this is not a funny story. It's not funny because the reason the one man beat the seven was not because he knew Taekwondo or karate. That's not the reason. It was because there was an evil spirit in him. And what makes his story not funny but sad is that there were seven men who came wanting to free this man from this evil spirit. They, they wanted to do him some good. They, they, they were really trying to help this fellow man by freeing him from the bondage of this evil spirit. And, and, and these people, they, they knew about Jesus. They knew of his power. And they, they bring the name of Jesus into this picture. In the name of Jesus, they want to cast this demon out. And yet, they are greatly, greatly humiliated. They'll never forget this one. Why? Why did this humiliation happen? And what should we learn from it? Well, look at verse 15. Look at, look at what the evil spirit says to these seven sons of Shiva before beating them up big time. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? In other words, let me, let me, let me translate this for you in a bit. In other words, you invoke the name of Jesus, and by his name, you want to kick me out of this man. But you don't belong to Jesus. I know Jesus. And I know his servants. But you, who claim his name, you're not one of his. Who are you? I love David Peterson's commentary. He says, The forces of evil knew the difference between one who truly ministered in the name of Jesus and pretenders. The evil forces know the difference. Friends, this fact alone should give us great chills. We may not, we may not always know who the pretenders are. 
although Jesus did give us some pretty good clues in the Sermon on the Mount, and the New Testament has other references, other indications for how to discern true followers of Christ from false followers of Christ, from pretenders. But even with these indications, we may not always be able to judge precisely. So, one thing we're told here, though, is that even though we may not know all the time, the forces of darkness know. The spiritual world around us knows who truly belongs to Jesus and who doesn't. The spiritual forces know when someone claims the name of Jesus, but they don't actually belong to him. Oh, friends, they know when someone just uses the name of Jesus to their advantage or even for the advantage of others without actually belonging to Jesus. Friends, let's learn from this evil spirit. Let's learn something from this evil spirit. You can know Jesus. You can know his power. You can know his authority. You can know about his servants. And yet, this evil spirit is still evil spirit. There's a knowledge that doesn't lead to salvation. There's a knowledge about Jesus that simply does not lead to salvation. And there are people who have this kind of knowledge. The seven sons of Shiva also had a similar, son, similar knowledge, even though their knowledge was layless than what the spirits knew about Jesus. And yet, such knowledge does not save. Having knowledge about Jesus is not the same thing as being saved by Jesus. That's why, friends, some people might know even to recite the gospel. They might know so many things about the Bible. They might know so many truths from the Bible. And yet, such people may not be saved. They might be great teachers of the Bible and yet not be saved. Seven sons of Siva learned this lesson the hard way. Even claiming the name of Jesus over circumstances in our lives does not mean that we have called on Jesus to be saved. Friends, there are people even today who are interested only in seeing or doing miracles, but without knowing Christ, without knowing Him and being known by Him. Remember Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Who are you? It's not just the demons that will say, who are you? It's Jesus himself who will say, who are you? You see, friends, God gave these seven sons of Shiva a great favor. A great favor. They experienced humiliation while they were still alive. Friends, when you're confronted with your pretense, it's a humbling experience. No matter, no matter who you are or what your pretense is. To pretend to be some, something or someone and to actually be proven to be something else is just humbling. It can be humbling in your job. <laughs> it can be humbling in, in, in just any social s scenario. But it's even more humbling in your spiritual, in our spiritual reality. 
Friend, to be confronted with our pretenses in this life is a great favor God would allow us to experience. Even if it may be humbling, it's still it's a great favor because we can do something about it. Then to find out the, of this pretense on the day of judgment when it will be too late. Such pretenders as the sons of Siva continue to be with us today. They know about Jesus. They may know about his name. They may even claim his name to do great things for other people. They may even try to help others in the name of Jesus, but they themselves do not belong to him. And make sure that you're not just a pretender. That you're just someone who claims the name of Jesus without, without being touched by his power in your own life. Pray that you would be careful of that. And if, if, if you're stuck or you find stumbling in miracles, Jesus said to the 72 disciples, one time he sent them out and they came back and they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing and they said, even the evil spirits are subdued to us. And Jesus said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our greatest joy should not be whether or not God chooses to work miracles through us, but our greatest joy should be that our names are written in the book of life in heaven. I wonder if that's you this morning. Pretenders claim the name of Jesus without being his followers. That was point number two. The last point, the last reality I want to point you this morning is the results of the power of God. The results of the power of God. The failure of these seven sons against a man possessed by an evil spirit brought some great results in Ephesus. This failure to manipulate the power of God brought three pairs of results. Three pairs of results. Uh, let's look at each of them very briefly, very quickly. First of all, the first pair of results that this failure produced was it brought fear and praise. It brought fear and praise. Look at verse 17. Look at what it says. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, was extolled. What was this fear about? Was it, was it a fear that now that this guy might come and overcome all of us? I don't think so. I, th I think this fear is really coupled together with, with the praise of the name of the Lord Jesus. The, the fear and the praise go hand in hand in this, in this verse. Up until now, people may have thought lightly about the name of Jesus, either by ignoring his name, they didn't think much about it, or by using his name as a magical formula for their advantage. But now they heard the testimony of the seven sons of Siva, that the evil spirits know Jesus and know his servant Paul, now people start respecting this Jesus. They start respecting the message that Paul preached about Jesus. And the name of Jesus was magnified. The name of Jesus was exalted, was praised, was enlarged. People started to know in a big way about the name of Jesus. So therefore, there was fear and praise. By the way, this combination of fear and praise is what defines a biblical attitude of reverence. 
reverence, biblical reverence, godly reverence includes both fear and praise. Now, if you, if you just have praise without the fear, that's, that's not right. That's not biblical kind of praise. If you have fear without praise, if you're just afraid of God, but you can't actually rejoice in who God is while you also have this fear of God, well, that's not biblical fear either. But fear and praise mixed together, they create a sense of, of biblical reverence. Many people today praise God without fearing Him. They may think highly about God without revering Him. They may be attracted to His power without ever coming to fear Him in a godly way. Or we may have this fear of God without knowing of His excellencies. The power of God manifested through the failure to manipulate the name of Jesus brings in Ephesus this reverence. But you know what this reverence, what this reverence produces? It's not just a feeling. It's not just a feeling. This true reverence, here's what it produces. Look at, here's a second pair of what, what this power of God, this reverence produces. It brought confession and repentance. Look at verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. This is what true reverence produces in us in regards to our sin. It makes us confess our sin. It makes us be afraid of our sin because we're more afraid of God dealing with our unconfessed sin. So we confess it. We bring it out. I love what Calvin says. The faithful were touched with the reverence of God when God set before them an example of his severity. The name of Jesus is not to be played with lightly. The name of Jesus is not to be claimed upon lightly. People came out confessing their secret practices of magic. Now, who are the people doing this? Look, look more carefully at verse 18. Many of those who are now believers. In other words, it was those who are now Christians that they realized they kept practicing in secret some magic. Even though now they were professing Christ, they still held on to some of their previous practices. And now they realize what God has been doing, and they start confessing their sins. And it's not just a confession by word of mouth. It's a confession with their deeds as well. Look at what verse 19 says. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Wow. Their repentance is seen by the fact that they are turning their backs to the very resources they used for their sorcery, for their practices. This act of burning was very significant. It's an example of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount or elsewhere. Uh, if, um, if your eye makes you sin, cast it out. If your hand makes you sin, cut it off. The, the, the folks in, Ephesians, in Ephesus do the same thing now. They say, these books, they made it sin. They, they led us into it. We had them around us. There were temptations for us. Burn them. You know why this burning is so significant? Because it meant two big things for them. First of all, these books included formulas, magical formulas, sorcery for, formulas to protect themselves from evil forces. 
and they would keep these around in case something doesn't work they could pull it off the shelf and go through one of their chants again and, and, and practice their sorcery again to protect themselves from evil spirits. But now they're burning them. They're not going to be around their homes anymore. You know what that means? They're putting all their trust in God to protect them from evil spirits. There's nothing more, no other sorcery to use around. They're now turning themselves fully and radically to God. But there's something else about these books. And Luke gives us this detail, how much they cost. These books were very valuable. And notice, they, they, just don't, they don't do a garage sale and uh, raise money to build their building. You know, buy land and build a building. They don't do a garage sale with these books so they could raise money for missions. No. They burn them. Now, this amount, people uh, have different equivalences of what this was um, at that time. It translated for our day. Some people would say it was a year's wages for 137 people. Others have a more modest equation. They say it would be equivalent today. If, if, if there's no inflation, today it would be equivalent about $100,000. Still a lot of money. What do they do? They burn it. Wow. That's a costly repentance. Saying, thing, saying no to things that could be turned into money, that could be very valuable, and just letting them go. Letting them go. These believers, to them, they had the power of God to say no. This is how the power of God manifests in their lives. They, they're able to burn them. You know why? Because Christ is more precious. Christ is more precious. And in Ephesians 3, Paul said, and we read it earlier this morning, Verse 8, Paul said to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is what Paul has been preaching to the Gentiles in Ephesus. That Christ is more worthy. He is more valuable. As a matter of fact, the value of Christ is unsearchable for us here on earth. They're able to cast all that away because Christ is is more worthy. Friend, I wonder, does your reverence for God lead you to this kind of action? Does your reverence for God lead you to this kind of confession, this kind of repentance, this kind of turning away from sin? Imagine, if, if we were to translate this at, at a mass level, at a citywide level, imagine if God would, would work miraculously in all the owners of adult stores around Austin. And God would save them. And these, adult, uh, these owners of these, of these brothels would not sell their business to someone else and cash out the money off of their businesses, but they would close it down and make sure nobody would ever do this again as far as they could in Austin. With that kind of radical turn, when you realize the riches of Christ, 
the value of Christ, the excellency of Christ, you turn away from sinfulness. And you don't, not only for yourself, but also for others. And you don't want others to keep that sinfulness around. Instead, you want to give them Christ, not the books, not the, the sinful way of life, but instead give them Christ. Friends, I wonder, I wonder if, if what is going on in your own life, you may have held on secretly, that you need to confess. I wonder what's going on in your own life that you need to bring it out to light and turn away from. It may, there may be some financial cost to it. It might create some financial hurt. But friends, Christ is more precious than anything that we might be called to lose for the sake of his name on this earth. I wonder how the power of God may want to manifest itself in your own life this morning to enable you and I to bring out sin, to confess it and turn away from it. I wonder what it is that you need to bring out today. A second pair of results of the power of God that has been this confession and repentance. But then the final pair of results of the power of God is what happens in verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the third way we see in this passage the power of God, the results of the power of God manifested. Now, we know what it means for the Word of God to increase. It means more and more people get to know about it. We get to talk about the power of God. Now, why did this increase in Ephesus? Because the change the Word of the Lord was doing in people's hearts was so evident and clear, people couldn't stop talking about it. You know, friends, I wonder if we have a hard time speaking about Jesus is because the power of God is no longer transforming us. We are bored with our Christian life. We are bored with what what God is doing. So why would we talk about something boring to others? But when God is doing something new and fresh in your life, when he's continuing to change you and transform you and challenge you to be molded into the image of Christ, it's painful, it's humbling at times, but it's also exciting. And you, you want to talk about the things God is doing in your life. The word of the Lord increases as people talk about what God is doing in their lives. But it's not just increasing. There's something else. It's, it's really, this is great. It's not just the word of the Lord increased, but it prevailed. What does it mean that it prevailed? We know what it means to increase. What does it mean to prevail? It means it overcomes. It means as it increases, it overcomes. It overcomes a bondage to sin. It overcomes a, the secret practices. It overcomes sinfulness. It overcomes our worldliness. The word of the Lord not just increases, but prevails mightily. What we saw in Ephesus is an example of what it means for the word of the Lord not only to increase, but to prevail. When an entire city, Christians of, the, of an entire city would come and burn their books, and it became known inside of the, all, the whole city that this has happened. The word of the Lord prevailed. The word of the Lord prevails in our hearts when unbelievers turn from their sin. The word of the Lord prevails in our hearts when believers turn away from their secret practices and become free of their sin. Friend, I pray that this power of God 
would be manifested not just in Ephesus, but in our own midst as a congregation. I pray that the power of God would be manifested in our own lives as individuals. That the preaching about Jesus would be attended with the power of God to free us from whatever's going on in our lives. I pray that would be true of you today. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Great God and King, thank you that the preaching of your word is often accompanied by your power. Power to free us from our bondage. Oh Lord, we pray that those of us who have never been freed from the bondage of sin, that you may do that even today, even, even, even as we're here gathered in this place. But Father, we pray for those of us who, who have been freed from the bondage of sin and have embraced Christ, but still keep on to secret practices. Oh Lord, we pray, I pray, would you show us Christ to be more excellent than anything this world can ever offer? Would you show us Christ again, that we may know him and his power that frees us from our secret practices? Oh, Lord, would you give us the power to confess and repent? And may you work in us that which would prevail your word over anything that's sinful in our lives, so that your word would increase in Austin and prevail in Austin and to the ends of the earth. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen.